Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, December the 27th, 2022. Uh, as the year winds down, we've been thinking backwards, of course. America has an odd, probably like most countries, America has an odd relationship with its history. It can neither remember nor forget. And perhaps exhibit A on that front is Watergate. Uh, we've done a number of shows this year on Watergate. We did one with the excellent historian Garrett Graff, uh, whose new book, uh, Watergate, A New History, is actually in an odd way an old history comparing uh richard nixon's america with donald trump's america um we also did a show this year with the conspiracy theorist jefferson morley who connects uh watergate with uh in his new book scorpion's dance with the assassination of jfk uh even i wrote something about us we Americans, I guess, still living in Nixon's paranoid America, very much based on a, an excellent new book by Kevin Boyle called The Shattering America in the 60s, America in the 2020s. I think Boyle thinks is not that different. Of course, for, for many uh, people, uh, Watergate is a deeply personal event. One of the people who had on the show recently was Dwight Chapin, um, his book, uh, The President's Man, The Memoirs of Nixon's Trusted Aid, is a book about his own experience um, in Watergate and how he, Dwight Chapin, uh, went to jail for Richard Nixon. He seems to think that it was all still rather unjust. Uh, we're continuing this theme of personal consequences of uh, of, of Watergate and how it's very hard to forget. Uh, with my guest today, uh, Matthew uh, Krogh is the co-author with his uh, unfortunately recently departed father, Egil Bud Krogh, uh, of The White House Plumbers. It's a book which in many ways is a sort of revised, condensed version of a book they co-authored in 2007, called Integrity. And I'm thrilled that um, Matt is joining us from uh, 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 Baja, California. You're off the grid, Matt, but not quite enough. We still caught up with you. Um, this book, The White House Plumbers, is so personal for you on, on so many levels. Perhaps you might introduce the book, the project, and its impact on you uh, in terms of your life. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and thank you so much for having me on. Uh, not quite off the grid yet, but, but we're working on it. Um, yeah, th this project came about, um, we started talking about it maybe 15 or 16 years ago. And realistically, since the days of Watergate, um, during which, at which time my dad served four and a half months in federal prison, um, so yeah, so so like um, like Dwight Chapin, um, mm -hmm. your your father went to jail on behalf of Richard Nixon. You know, I, I think there's a there's something a little bit loaded in that word behalf. Uh, I think yeah, I, and I, and I to be fair, that's not your language. So please call me on that one. Well, I, I would just say that I, I think that one of the themes that 
uh, we explored in the book and that my dad had been exploring for himself uh, was a cost of loyalty and in, in particular unquestioning blind loyalty to folks like President Nixon. And so when we talk about you know, who went to jail or prison on behalf of Nixon, for some folks, they really were taking a fall. Um, the thing that I think uh, is one of the things that we feature in the book um, that is perhaps important and a key differentiating factor between uh, how my dad approached his culpability versus how others saw their role and the downfall of the Nixon administration, uh, my dad uh, refused to uh, share any information or to testify until he had been uh, sentenced for what crimes he had actually committed. Uh, in this case, it was depriving um, Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist, Dr. Lewis Fielding, of his Fourth Amendment rights. So my dad pled guilty to Fourth Amendment. That's pretty technical. I mean, well, un unreasonable search and seizure, right? I, I think uh, having the government break into a citizen's home uh, is perhaps another way to phrase the the Fourth Amendment, uh, and and it's wrong. And I think one of the things that we see as again as a theme throughout the book is this differentiation between the actual oath of office or the um, uh, the, the pledge that new federal employees take to uphold the Constitution, uphold and protect the Constitution. And so violating that oath with a, a Fourth Amendment uh, violation, breaking into a public you know, citizen's home, uh, is clearly a violation of that oath of office. And I think that differentiation between uh, the oath of office to uphold and protect the Constitution, which all of our elected officials and our public servants take, compared to blind loyalty to a Nixon or to a Trump, uh, is exactly the, you know, one of the key underlying lessons. That we're yeah, and Matt, let me maybe, you know, I jumped in as I tend to do here and maybe uh, exaggerated, but there is something that is quite striking. I mean, Dwight Chapin went to jail. Your dad went to jail. I mean, only for four months, but it's still a very meaningful four months. Anyone who spends four months in jail really impacts their life. Richard Nixon never went to jail. I mean, he had to resign, of course. So there is a difference. And of course, without, without Richard Nixon, there wouldn't have been the White House plumbers. So I, I guess that's my point. My, when I say on behalf, I think that's probably slightly unfair. Mm -hmm. But it is quite jarring that, I mean, your father wasn't a little man, but he was a smaller man than Nixon. And he ended up going to jail. So did Dwight Chapin and, and Nixon didn't. So that's my point, really. And that, that's and that's a fair point. But I think there's a, you know, what what one of the other themes that we explore in the book is what is justified for the government to do or representatives of the government when we think there's an actual national security crisis. And the question that I think uh, uh, many of us would grapple with in the same sorts of circumstances is you've been told by the president as, as my dad was, as um, Liddy was, as the other members of the plumbers, uh, that this is a key national security issue to explore what's happening with the leak of the Pentagon Papers. There's a very real threat to America because of the release of these papers and what more Daniel Ellsberg might do. So, right. so, so, so let me jump in, Matt, because I want to begin at the beginning. Not everyone will know who the White House plumbers were. They even have their own Wikipedia page. And your book is indeed being turned into a, an HBO miniseries uh, that's going to come out next year. So the White House plumbers are going to become famous next year, oddly enough. Explain mm -hmm. 
who they were. I mean, uh, Ehrlichman is, is better. Uh, sorry, uh, John Ehrlichman, who was your dad's boss. George uh, Gordon Liddy, uh, uh, Howard Hunt. They were all part of um, uh, the White House plumbers. Explain who they were and how they came about before we get into the details. Uh, thank you. That's, that's an important grounding. Yeah. Uh, so, so we go back to 1971. There were multiple different um, uh, concerns at the forefront of Nixon's mind. And two of them in particular prompted the creation of what uh, the Special Investigations Unit, which became called the Plumbers. One of the, one of the real national security concerns that was at the forefront of Nixon's mind was the leak of negotiating papers having to do with what's called the, at the time, uh, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. This was a way to try to prevent more uh, nuclear proliferation between the US and the Soviet Union. So somebody had leaked our, our negotiating position. Did he have a case? Was, I mean, Nixon is, of course, famously paranoid, but, sure. um, you know, he certainly wasn't the first or the last paranoid American president. Uh, FDR, we all remember him very fondly, but he was also paranoid. Oh, I, I think Nixon certainly had a case, and in particular with the, the SALT, the, you know, SALT-1 treaty, we call it. Um, however, I think that that, and, and I wish I had seen your article earlier on, on uh, Nixon's paranoia, or we're still living in Nixon's paranoid America, because I'm guessing there's some similar themes. Um, you know, you can take it, it, the, the inability to distinguish between what is clearly a national security question and what may or may not be a national security question, but clearly has some political risk. All those things seem to get conflated. And so that the second thing, not the arms limitation treaty negotiations, but rather the leak of the Pentagon Papers by Daniel Ellsberg to the New York Times. This was the second thing that triggered the creation of the Special Investigations Unit. And those papers had nothing to do with the Nixon administration, but instead reviewed what had been happening in Vietnam under previous administrations. And so uh, what Nixon was concerned about was not those papers, but the fact that Ellsberg uh, at the Rand Corporation, a Marine colonel, uh, very well informed, he was concerned about what else he might have, what else might undermine uh, what he told my dad was his, were Nixon's efforts to create peace in Vietnam. And so, you know, you're, you're sitting in this, uh, uh, if, if one is my dad or the other folks who became part of the Special Investigations Unit, you're sitting in this environment of there's very real war uh, happening, there's very real concern about nuclear arms proliferation, um, you have leaks coming from various places. And so Nixon's real concern was fit, trying to figure out how to plug those leaks. And so he uh, ordered the creation of the Special Investigation Unit. John Ehrlichman implemented it on uh, July 17th. And they started creating essentially a, a hidden room, room six in the old executive office building, a secret society of these guys, uh, Liddy and Young, uh, Hunt. My dad. Uh, are you... Matt, are you suggesting then, I mean, the, the traditional take on, on Nixon and, and, and Watergate was he was simply paranoid and bent on destroying his political opponents. So your, your reading in the White House paper, plumbers, I was going to call them papers, the White House plumbers and the subtitle is the seven weeks that led to Watergate and doomed Nixon's presidency. You're suggesting it's a little more complicated than that? 
Well, I mean, Nixon, of course, is a very complicated man, and they were complicated times. But yeah, absolutely. I, I think both things can be true, right? I, I, I think one of the things that has been interesting for me, I, I uh, you know, come into all this with my dad's stories, but of course, also uh, I'm aware of how America used to uh, really think Nixon was a great president uh, up until all this happened. He was reelected in a landslide. Um, and as the stories of Watergate came out, where perhaps we see a more progressively paranoid Nixon, um, all these sort of themes, the bits and pieces that were started by things like the wrongdoing of the plumbers uh, prior to Watergate, um, all those things can build and grow on themselves. And so I think there's a, there's a tendency, and I share this tendency, to look back and see uh, Nixon as this, this villain, um, and to a certain extent he was. But he was also somebody who was in public service for decades, who was trying to be a good president, who was also a victim of his own paranoia, in, in my opinion. And so I think uh, what you described and what I said can both be true at the same time. And I think we see an evolution during the presidency. Are we, have, have we been, has, have the, the White House plumbers been unfairly portrayed in popular American culture? I recently rewatched All the President's Men. I'm sure you're very familiar with that movie um, in which the, I don't even know if the term White House plumbers was used, but when, Ehrlichman and Liddy and Hunt were presented. I'm not sure if they were formally each of them presented in the movie, but they're presented as kind of white collar thugs. Do you think that um, books and movies like All the President's Men have have been unfair in their portrayal of the people around Nixon? Um, Leading I don't question. Know. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I think. Uh... Taking it back to sort of the uh, the, the framing of, of this book, which is a, a relatively short book, a, I hope an enjoyable read for people. Um, but at the time that the plumbers were created, I, I don't think that the members were necessarily white collar thugs, perhaps some inclinations that way. Um, but I think the one of the lessons that we're trying to get at in the book that's directly connected to your, your question about how people are portrayed in popular media later, um, you're taking folks, whatever their inclinations were. You know, Hunt was a CIA guy. He'd been involved in, in Cuba, Liddy, FBI, uh, had his own proclivities, young, my dad. And, uh, and Eric Mann was a, a notorious bully, not a very nice man, my understanding, anyway. Well, you know, my, my personal experience with him was he was a, he was a good man, but I, I've heard the same from others. Um, but so I, I think one of the questions is, like, what circumstances do we put people in where... And we talk about Nixon's darker angels, right? Uh, where we put that we, we put people in where it allows some of those white collar thuggish uh, inclinations to come out. And the problem, I think, with the creation of the special investigations unit, and had a lot of conversations with my dad and with some doctoral researchers about this, is you know you take people, you tell them this is a matter of utmost national security. Um, whatever you do needs to be pursued in secret. You do what needs to be done. Uh, shut people away for part of their time in a, uh, a secret room, uh, make sure that there's cash available to do the work that needs to be done. Um, and you get a mindset, uh, a groupthink mindset that I think allows uh, that kind of white collar thuggery to be uh, affirmed and, and pursued. And so the decision within the special investigations unit, the plumbers, um, 
to actually break into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office to go look for dirt on Ellsberg to make sure he wouldn't leak again was an immoral decision. And it was the wrong thing to do. Um, but in the context of that group operating in secret without any feedback, without any real oversight, I think you can understand how the pressure of national security could start driving people towards that sort of action. And my dad uh, approved and supported that action. He encouraged uh, uh, Liddy and, and Hunt to come up with something that would actually help with the circumstance. And that's what came out. And so, you know, each of the members of the plumbers had their own proclivities. So, so tell me a little bit more about your father. Uh, yeah. Again, sadly, he died in January 2022. What was his background? How did he find his way to working for John Ehrlichman in DC? So our, uh, so his background, uh, my, my dad uh, was probably the last person that anybody would have expected to sort of sow the seeds of the administration's demise. Uh, it was his nickname, his, his name is Eggle. Uh, his nickname was Evil, uh, out of pure irony, because uh, he's just somebody who had never do something evil. Uh, he, you know, he was in the Navy, he served Navy. Um, our family was very uh, middle American Christian family, like focused on on values. And uh, so our families, the, the Krogh families and the Ehrlichman families have been friends for some 15 years. Um, and so John Ehrlichman gave my dad his first job uh, out of law school. And so it was mere months uh, after uh, joining the Ehrlichman firm that uh, Ehrlichman ended up being the tour director for- Where did your father go to law school? Uh, University of Washington in Seattle. So fresh out of law school, he found himself working for Ehrlichman. In his memories, did Ehrlichman compromise him, force him to do these things? Did he? Do you think he had in his mind the freedom to say, I don't want to be part of this. I'm going to go and find another job. I mean, no one was forcing him to do this. Right. You know, I, I don't know that uh, my dad ever felt compromised by Ehrlichman or anyone else. I don't think that compromise, being compromised by management was the dynamic that we might talk about today, but rather uh, inside the White House, you know, there were uh, these charismatic megafauna of people like Ehrlichman as a special counsel of the president who each had their own fiefdoms of people who were loyal to them. And each of these uh, leaders in the White House, you know, Colson, whomever, uh, were directly loyal to Nixon. And so this, you know, sort of this chain of custody, if you will, of loyalty, you know, trickled down. And so when you're when you're told by your boss and your boss is the president or Ehrlichman directly, um, this is national security. You do what has to be done and you're free to do it. And as Ehrlichman uh, wrote on a it wasn't a post-it, but a, a memo, it's like approved as long as you don't get caught. And then he signed his initial as, as he did. Um, you do what needs to be done, I think. And I, and I think it's that sort of uh, loyalty to person and loyalty to uh, like these chains of, of loyalty that uh, become part of the problem when you separate it from loyalty to law or loyalty to- Yeah, and, and Matt, the, the subtitle of the book, uh, the new book, The White House Plumbers, is the seven weeks that led to Watergate and doomed Nixon's presidency. What about the life of your father? It didn't doom his life. He died only a couple of years ago. He, he not only wrote um, in integrity, but he was busy in other areas. He even wrote a book. Uh, I, I have to admit, I haven't read it or even heard of it before, uh, but with a fascinating title, The Day Elvis Met Nixon. How did this shape his life? 
it didn't doom his life, did it? As a father, as a husband? Well, I, I mean, uh, doom, I think, is a, uh, is a strong word. But Yeah, well, I'm just borrowing the word from this, the subtitle. He spent yeah. four months in 1974 in jail. Is that correct? Uh, yes, four, four and a half months in prison. And, and, and you were four more. years old at the time, so it's yeah. hard probably for you to remember a lot of it. How many siblings did you have or do you have? Uh, I continue to have one one sibling uh, jointly with my with my mother uh, and another with my father's third wife. But I, I think the question of impact on his life is a, a really interesting one. I think uh, you know that my my folks had come together and apart a couple times, but I would say that the aftermath of Watergate was what finally drove them apart. Uh, my father was disbarred, and I think uh, from so he was no longer allowed to practice law, and that vote happened in 1975. And I think one of the things that, that happened for me is like, you know, I, I'd heard all the, the Watergate stories and uh, White House stories from my dad growing up, but I don't think I had really realized how um, uh, emotionally uh, negative people were about him and his experience until I started going back through letters to the editor of the Seattle Times and Seattle Post Intelligencer uh, at the time that my, my father was removed, disbarred for the practice of law. Uh, and it's, some of what was published in print makes, you know, the, the trolls and the comment sections on online today look look like you know, weaklings. Even. Um, and so I think there there is a very, very real anger uh, and understandable anger from the American people associated with the Watergate crisis, you know, Watergate scandals and my dad's role. Um, but I think we can also juxtapose that for him. You know, he was ascendant. He, he was climbing up the political ladder. He was one of the youngest undersecretaries in the U.S. history. Uh, I think his future was in government was incredibly bright. Um, yeah, but it was also, I mean, I guess he compromised. I mean, power is seductive and it's sure the closer you fly to the sun, the more dangerous it became or it becomes. So, yeah. but clearly much of the rest of his life was spent wrestling with his conscience in, in the description of the book, uh, in the section on you, um, you you're, 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 you're described as being grateful for the opportunity to amplify your father's important life lessons. What kind of life lessons do you think those are? And um, as, as the co-writer, have you tried to amplify them? Sure. Well, I think actually my, my professional work is a large part of... Yeah, and I want to get to your professional work a little later, actually, but sure. let, let's just focus on your father for the moment. So I, I think, you know, the, the title of the original book, Integrity, uh, really gets at the core of the life lessons that he wanted to share. And I think the, the what makes us who we are, what makes us whole, um, and, and, you know, my dad had all kinds of metaphors for integrity and why it was important to talk about the, the hull of a ship or the, an eggshell, you know, you, you pick. Um, but once it's breached, uh, you, you have a, a lot of work to do to, to heal and repair that. And so I think for him, for he himself, looking at the lessons of what happened, how he got um, persuaded, we'll say, by circumstance to do what was clearly the wrong thing, ended up becoming... Uh, or happening because he had violated his own integrity. And instead of focusing on what he knew to be right and asking the key questions, like we, we developed something called the integrity zone, integrity zone together, which uh, asks the questions, you know, is this action I'm taking um, legal <laughs> at, at, at core, right? Uh, is it good? Uh, is my analysis whole and complete? 
you know, that we don't always know when we're in these circumstances of, of some really tough questions, but oftentimes we do. And I think uh, one of the key lessons that he wanted uh, people to hear was your own personal integrity is, uh, is paramount, paramount and that you must take the time to step back and think. Because once you lose or crack your own integrity, forever or it'd take a long time to recover it that's really one of the clear lessons that i think he was trying to get out there uh, matt fathers and sons like to play ball and chop wood together but this is a wonderful father and son project it must have been enormously meaningful to both of you uh, we, we had a we had a great time uh and we started talking about it a few years after i built this uh this small home office in my garage with a couple of writing desks and I would go down to Seattle once a week. He was, would come up once a week and uh, just talking through this, going to get stuff out of archives and the Nixon archives, talking to some of the folks associated with the stories. Um, it, was, it was a really uh, wonderful sort of give and take, I think. We, we talked about things, right? I'd heard the stories about the creation of the National Environmental Policy Act checklist. You know, this was a, a, a whole story in itself. He was a wonderful storyteller. Um, but the ability to dive deep into what actually happened back in the day and, and, and understand it from his point of view and actually probe and ask questions about what had happened, it was, yeah, it was a gift. Yeah, it's a wonderful story uh, coming out of your book, uh, 2007 Integrity, now uh, sort of re redone in a way in, in, in the new book, uh, White House Plumbers. And coming back to your career, um, you are now uh, involved with Stand.Earth. You're a committed environmentalist uh, at Stand.Earth. We, of course, do many shows on the environment. How, uh, is there a connection between your commitment professionally and philosophically to the environment? Absolutely. And being the son of, of, of Bud Krogh and living through what you live through? Oh, absolutely. And I'd say that there are two key themes. Um, one... Uh, my dad was just a committed outdoorsman uh, from, from, from single digit age. I can't remember what age he said it was. Uh, his parents would take him up to Snoqualmie Pass east of Seattle and drop him off for camping because they heard camping was good for kids. Um, turns out he did, he did all right. He survived. That was good. <laughs> but uh, over the years, both he and my mom uh, imparted a, a love for the outdoors to my brother and me. Uh, we you know, dedicated climbers, trail runners, you name it. So on, on the one thing, there's there's very real love for the outdoors. Um, but the second is, you know, in the, you know, what I just talked about with the integrity zone with asking these three key questions. So is what I'm doing legal or right? Is it good? And is it whole and complete? That sort of whole and complete question when you apply it to the actions of corporations or government, uh, are they doing the right thing? And oftentimes I think you can say the answer is no. Um, and in particular for the environment or for, people who are most impacted by pollution and environmental justice communities. Um, and so my work is really focused on trying to sort of correct uh, those structures, trying to get corporations or entire you know, market sectors of, of industry or governments to actually do the right thing as they should be doing, but aren't. And so I think that theme of, you know, sort of identifying what needs to be uh, done, sort of correct our circumstances to course correct uh, where our larger institutions are moving is something that my dad and his work in government was very involved in, uh, something I'm involved in now. Uh, one of the things we talk about in the book is his work in the early days of trying, um, you know, honestly, it probably resulted in, in the war on drugs. Uh, but what they were doing at the time under the Nixon administration was actually good. 
they, uh, they're trying to figure out what they were going to do about crime in the District of Columbia that was seemed to be caused largely by uh, heroin addiction, by potentially by returning vets, by other folks. And as they dove into the causes, the underlying root causes of the, this crime that, increase that was happening, it was pretty clear that people needed treatment. And so my dad worked with various people, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, um, Benny Prim, and they identified a course of action where it would be about 90% of the funding would go into treatment and 10% would go into law and order enforcement of drugs and crime. And when Nixon saw the plan, he looked, he said, that's great. That's, that's what the science says. We'll do it. But don't talk about the 90%. Just talk about the 10% that goes into law enforcement. And that sort of, I think, PR component, it was a well-structured response to the, the, the issues of, of drug addiction and crime. But the PR about law enforcement and what we talked to the public about ended up becoming sort of the root, I think, of what became the war on drugs and I think a misallocation of, of funds. And so my dad, my dad loved that work, that policy work, the things that got at the root causes of the problem. Uh, and I think one of his real regrets was uh, not being able to really participate in government uh, after uh, his time in prison. Talking about memory in America, uh, the, the book, your new book, The White House Plumbers, uh, is about to become a five-part HBO series star starring Woody Harrison and Justin Thoreau, lots of American stars. Um, I wonder whether you fear that the celebrity nature of American culture will simply flatten this and just make it into just another glamorous mini series. I'm not sure. Have you have you seen the series yet? No, I've seen the trailer. And the trailer. I mean, uh, and and these things tend to present the world in terms of extreme good and evil. Are you fearful that uh, that the mini series will misrepresent? Uh, I mean, books do tend to do a better job um, representing the complexity of history. For you, of course, this is an, an incredibly complex issue, both per personally and intellectually. Well, I, I would say that uh, the chances of any given you know, uh, reproduction or, or a miniseries based on a book not getting many things wrong are, are probably near zero. And I'm, I'm sure that it will focus on the more cinema, cinematic uh, components thereof. But I'm hopeful, though, that, you know, since they share a title and whatnot, that perhaps folks who enjoy the miniseries will be interested in, you know, one of the one of the through lines, one of the stories that's in that miniseries, which is represented in the book, uh, my dad's story. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, it looks very entertaining. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but no, I don't expect it to in any way um, be a, a, you know, faithful reproduction of the book. I, I think one of the things that is visible in the trailer is the... Uh, the very real leading parts that the women who are involved um, in, you know, the Watergate scandals are. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, you. Your mother was divorced. You, you said your dad was married three times. Mm -hmm. I guess your mother had a different reading, certainly than your father of this. You know, I, th I think she did, um, but you know, she's a wonderful writer. My mom, Suzanne, and uh, she wrote a couple pieces for Red Book back in the day in 74, I think. They're, they're about 74, 75. Um, and her like, very thoughtful um, analysis or assessment of you know, what had been happening, what it was like from the perspective of the families, um, the Watergate families and, and whatnot. You know, I think, I think her, 
I would say her perspective is largely comported with, with my dad's. Um, but of course, from a, a very personal and, and different level, she focuses. Right, well, I can imagine it must have been a particularly hard time. So let's end, uh, uh, Matt, with uh, the miniseries. People, everyone's going to watch the miniseries, of course, because it's got Justin Thoreau and Woody Harrelson, blah, blah, blah. But, um, uh, and you haven't seen it, I haven't seen it, but hopefully well, people will also read your book. Uh, what, what one or two lessons would you like people to learn from the White House plumbers and, and indeed what your father would want people to learn from it, moral lessons? Uh, it, it just going back to touching the same thing again, I think that the critical nature of integrity for, for all of us in our lives uh, and uh, becoming aware of the circumstances or the the things that are playing out around us that might challenge our integrity or make us willing to to consider actions that might violate it. And so I think at at, at its core, uh, the the book The White House Plumbers is really a, a description of how somebody's integrity, no, no matter what their intent might be, um, can end up getting breached. And hopefully, some lessons therein will help people protect their own. Excellent, Matt. Thank you. I, I hope I didn't.